Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome to Beyond Healing Institute. This is our first episode where it's the four senior clinicians of Beyond Healing Institute sitting down to have a conversation together. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. Yeah, so it's Jen, Bridger, Caleb, and myself, Melissa. We have never recorded all four of us together. Yeah. yeah. It's a party in here. <laughs> it is. Even setting up the fourth microphone was a challenge. But we're, we're, we're yeah. here, and that's good. That is good. Yeah. So everybody might be wondering... Why are we doing this? Because we haven't done it before. Yeah. And we're actually going to release this episode on the majority of our podcast. Mm-hmm. I think so. That's the plan. Yeah. So we wanted to have this conversation with all four of us because, well, for a few reasons. Number one, we kind of wanted to introduce you guys to the idea of Beyond Healing Institute. And Bridger, I'm going to let you talk about that here in a second. But then the other thing that we want to talk about is one of the main things that we do here at Beyond Healing, and specifically the Institute portion of what we do, is we are theory creators, which is kind of a big deal in the sense of it's, uh, well, I don't know how you guys feel, I'll just speak to how I feel, a little intimidating to say, yeah, I write theory. <laughs> yeah, I never say that, actually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that never comes out it's of it. Just associated from <laughs> yeah, from that reality awareness. Yeah. It's just right. there. You just do that, right? And and I think that uh, it's it's a thing that we advertise as. Hey, we have these theories, and we've created these trainings, and we're doing more of it. But we haven't ever ever really said why did we decide to do that, and what exactly do we believe about theory creation, and why did we want to be another voice in a sea of a lot of voices when it comes to theory as far as hmm. um, clinicians go and how we practice as therapists. Um, and so I kind of instigated this as a conversation with the four of us to sort of bring all of our different versions of the why behind that because I think we all kind of have our own maybe unique and personal perspectives on why we're drawn to this kind of work and why we value it so much. So we decided to record this conversation because I'm pretty sure it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, really transparently, we have not ever had this conversation no. before <laughs> us even. Not explicitly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like it's never been, we've never sat down and thoroughly discussed the yeah. why mm-hmm. behind theory creation and what, you know, we all feel and kind of what perspective we hold on that. So mm-hmm. this is exciting just on a personal level to be exploring yeah. this together. I agree. With Mike's. <laughs> with mics on we might as well do, we do it do that it way <laughs> yeah and we're just making the assumption that somebody's going to be interested in hearing what we have to say about this so <laughs> it's on the podcast <laughs> that's so right they have to listen that's to it in a way to, yeah um well so as a way of kind of starting out bridger if you'll sort of share like what is beyond healing institute because we've been beyond healing center for a really long time and now we've kind of um created this whole other sphere of things that we do and uh, I guess I just kind of want everybody to understand, like, why did we do that? What is it for? And what are our dreams about mm. BHI? Um, because I think that goes right along with why did we decide to do theory creation in such a direct way? Yeah. I think Beyond Healing Institute is something that is a collaborative kind of space just 
as a organization and it's something that has so much to do with theory creation but it also has to do with um the practice and really like the why behind the practice of what makes psychotherapy work what makes different types of psychotherapy work and why do it one way or the other also how do you talk about it how do you teach other people how to talk about it Mm -hmm. it has um to me just an infinite number of possibilities so when it comes to writing theory i think beyond healing institute is one of the places where it that just developed organically Mm -hmm. i don't think it was something that was necessarily at the heart of why we set out to do any of this um but it's just something that i think validates and gives us the space to be ourselves and the space to um kind of like the stage on which to do the things that we're already just kind of naturally doing Mm -hmm. so beyond healing institute it's hard to put it into just one thing because it's not one thing and the theory that comes out of it i think represents a lot of like the intention behind that Mm. so beyond healing institute is um just as it is just as it sounds an institute wherein uh trainings of therapists equipping people to practice psychotherapy and also collaborate and create community with other therapists and uh non-psychotherapists so healers all across the map and people that are interested in uh healing and interested in human science Um, so beyond healing Institute makes space for all of those minds and people and beings to come together and actually collaborate. Excuse that uh, very loud engine. Yeah. We are downtown occasionally. It makes itself known. (laughs) Yes. People drive loud vehicles, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Caleb, what do you think about beyond healing Institute? Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying. It sort of, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about like the how wide reaching like this cultural moment is Hmm. and how each of us in some way, like bear some semblance to that of we all have different interests, but they come together in the realm of therapy and in helping people kind of grow, develop, be a whole human. And we just decided at some point almost like without explicits Hmm. um, to just continue to build that community and, the Institute to me feels like it's that shared space of, Hey, like we talk about the movie arrival, like all the time. Yeah. And it's like that shared space in which we can exchange language and come to greater understanding of why do we do the things we do and why does it help people the way it helps people? And Mm -hmm. like, why, like just to make sense of it. And so the Institute feels like it's one of, science it's one of story it's one of friendship it's one of like healing for us and then our clients up at the center um it just feels like this like beautiful space of integration Um, yeah and institute is such a left hemispheric word um (laughs) but i really feel like it is like it's called that in like a playful way yeah because it's almost redefining what the institute Mm. like what that what we desire it to be is not this elitist place of um you know you have to be like up with the most cutting edge research and you have to know all the all the jargon it's like no you if you're interested in joining the discussion just come as a subject and Hmm. let's let's make meaning together and i think each person's subjectivity has so much to offer into the institute it's even though we're saying we develop theory um 
yeah, that piece of it not having to be intimidating. Caleb, as you're describing of like this elitist type mentality, like I said, I don't think I've ever actually said those words of like, we create theory, (laughs) but more of that idea of like, what can you bring from your own professional experiences, personal experiences, and offer it to the group where we can all share in those and connect and see what emerges out of that. Mm -hmm. And that is where a lot of this comes from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that uh, part of the reason why that idea of creating theory when we say it bluntly and in black and white like that, it feels a bit intimidating. It's because there's sort of this cultural feeling of, oh, if you create a theory, then this is what you believe the right way to practice is. And you're going to try to convince other people that that's the right way to practice. Mm. But I think one of the pieces of this conversation that I find really interesting is that everything that we've done up to this point and how I expect things to proceed is that we work in a way where we focus much more on the synthesis of much yeah, and the bringing together of a lot of diversity of perspective. But then we also come to theory with a pretty different um, understanding of what theory actually is and what it is for than maybe the way that we were originally taught in grad school. Mm. And one of the things that prompted this conversation that's happened, oh, I don't know, three, four, five, six times <laughs> over the last probably six months is we've gotten questions from listeners and people in our community about some of the theories that we reference specifically around this idea of, are they true? Yeah. Rightness. <laughs> yeah. Um, are they factually correct? Correct. Yeah. And I think that part of why we feel comfortable sort of engaging in this way with theory and speaking as confidently as we do is because we don't really view it that way. We actually come to theory with a really different understanding of what is theory Mm. and not in a way that seeks to bypass the importance of, you know, fact checking our work. Like that's not what it's about, but in this way that it almost makes those questions of rightness feel sort of irrelevant to us Yeah, sort of, uh, strange (laughs) yeah uh to encounter them in this way of i wonder why this feels so important to people Mm. right um and i think the internet has been unhelpful in this regard because sometimes there's a lot of clickbaity things floating around there out there about theories being debunked um Mm -hmm. and i'm really curious to kind of hear all of you guys talk about how that feels to you but i always feel a little funny when somebody says a theory is debunked because my initial thought is no that's the point of theory is that it evolves so yeah. what, what you're saying is that something has gotten added to it that's a good thing mm-hmm. <laughs> like the conversation is continuing the research is evolving which is exactly what's supposed to happen yeah with theory yeah mm-hmm. and i think in the space of asking whether or not something is debunked or is factually correct or has um some type of um unquestioning like authority authority. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that puts you into a burden of proof. That's just unrealistic and not really what advancing literature is about. Right. This isn't law. Right. This is idea and it's put forth in an academic way to say, can we actually start to inspect these implications, Mm -hmm. inspect these hypotheses Mm -hmm. and start to see if this actually is helpful to us in making sense of what we're seeing. 
Oh, but that's a very different way of engaging with academic discourse than the way that most of us were taught in grad school. Yeah. That question of, is this helpful to help us make sense of the phenomenon that we see in clinical work? In grad school, most of us are taught to engage with it as, this is correct, and you're going to cite these correct authority figures in your papers. Yeah. Which is very different. So, hmm. yeah. yeah. What do you guys think it's about It's very that? different. Yeah. I, I don't know. This has come up a couple of times in EBT already of just like how there's this interesting like implicit story about the actual researchers and that they're like super cutthroat and they all mm -hmm. hate each other. <laughs> and like they actually like to me, I imagine a totally different story Yeah, in which they're all like sitting around jovially at a, a table, like writing these papers, referencing each other like they're there's like in a way so friendly to one another in their papers mm -hmm. like referencing and even when they disagree it's like respectful it's super yeah. respectful and generous to mm -hmm. the to like what the other person is saying and it's so easy to fall into that i don't know if it's a consumeristic kind of like paradigm to mm. research but it's like um this is the best this is yeah. like the greatest and also like um this tells me like this is definitive and I, I don't know, maybe it's me as like a nine <laughs> and this is like my paradigm, but I've always felt so much more supported in any like reading I've done of just like holding multiple people's voices like within myself. Yeah. And to not like, looking for the one. Yeah. Like, and, and we do this with SIP all the time of like, we introduce a, a kind of concept and then we talk about where the theory comes from. And then we like, almost immediately say like, but that's not the full picture. Mm -hmm. And we have to like check with the other people at the quote unquote, like imaginal table, table, imaginary table at our theory. Um, and that just feels like so much more supportive to me. Mm -hmm. like, and, and that to me is like when you really get into research, like when you start writing it, when you start like deeply divulging into it, like looking at all the citations, like these guys are just, and girls, they're all very much friendly to one another, mm -hmm. referencing one another and seeking to like come together. It's rare that they're just like slashing one another. Yeah. Um, that, that feels like the outlier to me, mm -hmm. um, at least in my exposure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think like we're going to do a series or a small, uh, um, episode on what's been happening with polyvagal theory mm -hmm. right now, because I think polyvagal theory is an excellent example of like what we're talking about. Right wherein some of the scholarship that has come out is very uh, accusatory yeah. rude. and rude mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and takes that clickbaity vibe a lot more. Uses the word debunking. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so there is some of that, but largely I think the discipline of academia is intended to be very much so respectful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the, the philosophical foundations of research yeah. are that you can't, you can't get into an argument unless you are being generous to the other person. Right. That's like so initiating. So if you're going to like red herring fallacy, right. like yeah. you're going to deposit something into their argument that's not even there. Like you can't, this is like very yeah. high level like But that's exactly what's happening research. with polyvagal theory right now is yeah. the red herring fallacy. Right. So we have a good example of that just because not everybody's going to know what the heck the red herring fallacy means. <laughs> so, um... I think most of us read an article recently that was sent to us, not about polyvagal, but about uh, triune brain. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
in this article, the uh, author actually said, just so you know, you don't actually have a tiny reptile in the center of your brain. And I read that and laughed out loud. I'm like, at what point did the did the research and the authors of the try and brain theory say you have a, a tiny lizard. little lizard? Yeah, it's likely a gecko or maybe it's a chameleon. I'm not sure. I'm but not it's, sure. It's I'm living. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually in there with its tail and its teeth and all of that. Yeah, that's not what the theory said, and and that is a good example of the red herring fallacy of that's never what was intended yeah. uh, when that hypothesis was put forward. Um, but when we talk about it that way, it's like, oh my gosh, you're right. We don't have a lizard in our brain. We can't talk about the reptilian brain anymore. Uh, no, that's not actually what that means. So that's just a, a simple but very important example of what red herring fallacy does in those kinds of discourses and how not useful they are and really not at all in the spirit of academic discourse. Like this, that's not how it's supposed to go. Yeah. I had something that's standing out that Bridger and Caleb, you both said of, um, well, no, actually, maybe it was you, Melissa, is it helpful, that yeah. piece? And then, Caleb, as you're talking about that idea of being able to hold multiple voices in yourself as you're, as you're creating and working with um, another client, if we get so rigid and strict on one specific uh, research or theory or theorist how how much are we limiting ourselves in experiencing like humanity mm-hmm. yeah and to really look at like we're trying to be inclusive to the human experience that is so vast and yes. so diverse you and need so, so broad. many voices so many voices from now until forever yeah. because it will continue to evolve yes. and, and to stay up with that means not just you know limiting or restricting yourself to one single voice mm-hmm. yeah and, and it requires a lot of humility and Caleb, kind of like you were saying, it's it's the assumption that everybody has the best intentions. You know, when, when we put forward a hypothesis or a theory and say, hey, this, this might be valuable in our consideration of whatever clinical issue we're talking about, um, we're not taking a stance that this is the end-all, be-all, you know, biblical answer to how to be a good human. Yeah. And if you encounter a theory or a theorist or a researcher or an author that takes that position, please be very suspicious. Yeah. They're likely going to try to sell you something. <laughs> um, and... And there's nothing wrong with people, you know, benefiting and profiting from the theories they put forth because it's a lot of freaking work to to be dedicated in that way. But if somebody postures themselves as being the the right theory in a vast sea of perspectives, um, it's pretty pretty safe to be suspicious yeah. in that space. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the felt sense to me is the difference between scarcity and abundance. Yeah. Of are we in this place of there's a scarcity around um, the resources or the exposure, the people that we can reach and the influence we can have, or is it abundantly available? And that that's not something that has to become competitive and restrictive, but very inclusive. Yeah. And I think for us, what we are putting together is not a definitive theory. No, Mm -hmm. it's not even something that claims to be that. And that comes because uh, I think of the like disposition that all four of us have, we're creating an interpretive framework. Mm-hmm. like a a meta theory which is one that encompasses multiple other theories and helps to bring synthesis and clarity depending on what point of the like diamond you're going to look at like what side of the mm-hmm. diamond that you're going to look at and so to us we're really just 
collecting diamonds. Like that's honestly like what we're doing and putting them into just this one uh, large diamond to say, let's look at it through that and look at what happens to the light mm-hmm. when you shine it through now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if I wanted to know the diamond, I would go ask everyone around the circle around the diamond. Yeah. Like that's how I know the diamond. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just looking at the diamond, I will From only ever get my perspective. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much beauty to be had in the openness of tell me what you see. Like what, what, what's your perspective of the diamond? Mm-hmm. And even like asking how people have seen the diamond across time. Yes. That's like where research is somewhat the most beautiful is that yeah, we man. can see the transformation of how we as humans have seen this diamond through time. And that's yes. through myth, through research, through many different ways yeah. and, and exploration, mm-hmm. especially, especially psychological uh, theory or, or just theory of humans. That's something that it's been chasing the same breadcrumb trail for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like look at all of the different types of myth and liter like literature yeah. Uh, that records people contemplating what is the human. Mm-hmm. That's all relevant when you start talking about theory mm-hmm. with human beings. Well, and and even beyond that, I think that understanding that we've been asking the same questions the whole time, but the the progression of the answers is actually how evolution of our species happens. Yeah. Right. So. An easy example of that is the way that a culture conceptualizes the self in relation to the other. And when you track the, the theory of selfhood across time and across cultures, there's so much in common, but there's also this really clear progression of self-awareness and self-understanding. Mm. And that is part of how we evolve because we are in this constant feedback loop between our own self-awareness and our environment and both inform each other. And so when we, you know, are looking to make sense of where our species is headed, we have to look backwards Yeah. and we have to understand theory as an ever evolving myth of humanity. And, you know, that's one of the points that I kind of wanted to make that I really conceptualize theory as myth. And we have this weird thing in our culture where myth means not true, (laughs) which is not true. Mm. Um, Myth is beyond is it true or is it not true? It's a way of expressing um, realities that are incredibly complex. And when we do it in symbolic form and in the, the form of story and narrative, it communicates so much more than just stating a black and white yeah. fact. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that what we seek to do here at Beyond Healing is actually a lot about, you know, you said meta-theory and meta-mythology, Mm. of this collection of myth- mythological stories about what does it mean to be a human being and what does it mean to be a healer that works with human beings and in the enmassing of all of these myths together we get this incredibly robust pool of symbolism that we get to be supported by as a clinician so that when we're sitting with a client those symbols just sort of bubble up and emerge mm. with all of the felt sense all of the context all of the um the information that comes with a good story and with a good symbol that's so much more powerful than just one stated fact yeah and that is really what we seek to do um i don't know how you guys feel about that but that's how i conceptualize it (laughs) yeah i just think with that it holds the potential to be transferred into so many different contexts Mm -hmm. like a, a single fact 
is maybe relatable to you know a, a limited number of contexts when you when you bring it into story or you bring it into a myth theory then we can apply that then to an infinite infinite number of situations right. and you know contexts yeah which that there, there's a point that we wanted to get to on like the humility mm-hmm. of writing theory and i think jen what you're talking about right now is i our intention is that as a theory moves through a context that it would be changed yeah. that it would be added to mm-hmm. that it would be stretched and pulled and you know tried on yeah. in that context yeah and it, and what i was thinking is spoken in a different language yes mm-hmm. absolutely like, mm-hmm. like if i'm struggling to communicate a neuroscience like concept to a client i'll just say well okay let me just think of a metaphor yep and then they can or get the metaphor it. yes right. and it's like okay that's the language you get okay we'll speak that language mm-hmm. yeah but mm-hmm. it does this sort of like i hope that every time our theory goes into a new context it's spoken, but with a different language. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Because that kind of symbolism is so much more translatable, mm-hmm. right? Like when we're engaging with complex, com, well, complex ideas like the neuroscience of the human brain, mm-hmm. which anytime somebody says they know for sure something about the human brain, <laughs> uh, no. Um, but we have a lot of information at this point that gives us really substantial clues as to what is going on. Um, and one of the things that I've read recently about mythology that I just love is myth in order to be effective at doing what we want a good myth to do has to do with being believable, not proven. Right. And there's a big difference between being proven and being believable to acknowledge that something may or may not be proven, but it is believable means that we're operating like right on the edge of where science currently is. And allows us to extrapolate a little bit further. If we could only work with the information that we know for sure about the human mind, we're toast because we don't know that much. Yeah, There's so little that is for sure proven, but there's a lot that's believable based mm. on the evidence that we have. And theory and myth kind of lets, lets us sit right on that edge of where neuroscience is sort of pointing us saying, we think this is what is happening yeah. based on what we've observed up to this point. Yeah. And that question of, is this helpful? Yeah. Like that to me is the ultimate, Caleb, I go back to like what you were saying of the client. Like if I'm sharing something with a client and it doesn't feel like this is actually bringing uh, clarity Mm -hmm. to what they're describing, I'm not going to continue trying to just nail home (laughs) like what I wanted to say. No, no, no. You don't get it. Yeah. Okay. Wait, let me explain it. Okay. Why are you not getting this? Let let me give you a book to read about neuroscience right now. Yeah, exactly. Like let's contextualize it to that person (laughs) and help them understand why, uh, why this point feels like it will give so much understanding and context to the Mm -hmm. person, so much insight. And that transfers then into the context of those that we're training or teaching others. Yes. Yeah. Then there's a shared language to pass that on to other clinicians to be able to engage and connect similarly with their clients. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Martin Buber, who's like a, a philosopher has, he wrote the book. I, I and thou, um, he has a, a theory that it basically says like truth is dialogue, uh, yeah. Dialogical, not uh, monological. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Truth is discovered not in the monologue where I share my truth and then you accept it. Mm. Truth is found in the dialogue where we go back and forth. Yeah. And then what emerges from that dialogue is truth. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's like a beautiful kind of 
cross-discipline interpretation of theory and research and science is that, you know, it's great. And I will like go to bat for neuroscience any day Mm. and also like hold in the other hand that we need myth. We Mm -hmm. need art. Yes. We need stories. We need film. We need. Well, yeah. As you were talking, the, the phrase that we've played around with, like the stems of the words, like dialectical, we've played around with polylectical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's not just two even. Yeah. It's more than two. It's many. Yeah. And so in that it's the polylogue. Yeah. That determines truth. Mm-hmm. Which is a very constructivist way of looking at it, but yeah. I like it. <laughs> I mean, I'm there. I'm there all the way. Yes. Well, and I think that like there's so much humility in just taking that stance of this has to be a polylectical, ongoing, evolutionary conversation because if it is not, then number one, we get siloed. Yeah. And then we fall into this trap of looking for which theory is going to win and then everybody loses. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. Um, like I cannot overstate like the amount of ego and hubris involved in competing theories to see which one is going to win. Just there's no room for that in um, like the, the heart and the stance of a healer, like somebody that really is interested in doing what we think we're supposed to be doing as therapists. It's not about that at all. Yeah. And now, my gosh, this, this goes into the polyvagal theory, uh, like argument that's going on. But in one of the blog posts that I was, that somebody sent me, there was something uh, within that that said, is anything salvageable oh, from the polyvagal theory? Oh my and gosh, that they, makes me angry. <laughs> the blogger answered, no. Uh-huh. Like, the ar- the arrogance of that kind of stance as an academic is just really, really hard to believe. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, and in, in to this like point, like when we do trainings, we'll get this sort of like, implicit ghost of competition and mm-hmm. rightness yeah that sort of comes out in questions and it it has amazed me and will probably continue to forever amaze me that when you invite people to say like actually like this game that we're playing is more fun when they we don't care about who's right and wrong yes yeah. we don't care about winning but we just like try out every prison try out every position we kind of rotate, we have fun, mm-hmm. we talk to each other, we let's just communicate, dance. let's gonna be dance great. with one another. Yeah. Like, And to see people kind of find that freedom of like, oh, I don't have to play this game. Well, and the fact that their lived experience matters too in academic discourse, whether they're a traditional academic or not, like when they encounter a theory and they're looking at it going, mm, that doesn't resonate with my lived experience or that yeah. doesn't fit or work with a clientele that I work with, like, I don't know how this is useful to me. Then our answer would be, then it's not like, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't force something that is clearly not fitting because there's, there's so much about the way that theories have been developed in recent history that completely discounts realities of so many sections of populations of races of, uh, people that are not traditionally represented. I mean, like Caleb, you you said and rightly so these guys because the vast majority of theorists over the last several hundred years and probably longer than that have been white males period mm. like we have a a major issue when it comes to theoretical development because there's an over dominance of certain voices and a total lack of representation in other voices mm-hmm. so the idea that these theories could be right and accurate for all humans is ridiculous preposterous preposterous yeah 
When we're looking at <clears throat> meta theory that is highly inclusive and collaborative. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. look at, there's a group of four here right now, all working hour after after hour on theory development and content creation. And then we have a whole team of other people behind that. And every training we do, we're inviting every one of those people to join in and collaborate mm -hmm. on yeah, the development. Exactly right. And that just feels so beautiful to me that we can sit at a training and not from a place of competition of this is ours, like this has to be ours. Yeah, I hate that and our game. name is on yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. But it's oh man, that's great experience that you have and wisdom. Hey, do you want to like start scheduling regular consultation to collaborate on further developing that yeah. right, with that specific focus? Yeah. Literally, Bridger, you're doing that across the world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. literally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and why would that not be our invitation? Like as humans, why would we try to say, no, no, like I, you need to listen to me. Cause we live in capitalist America, Bridger. <laughs> <laughs> then why am I doing what I'm doing? That's well, another and, episode. <laughs> and, and also, which we kind of did one, uh, a mode, we did but, a little bit, yeah. okay. um, I would, yeah, it's so like fascinating to me that like what we in the psychological world study out there can be embodied in That's how right. we like do perform relate to research like i can have a disintegrated self-state that is a stress response yeah of like trying to find the right answer and oh my gosh people have so much trauma and trigger spots around academia and engaging with research mm -hmm. like oh my gosh yeah, yeah. you want to talk about a ghost of shame yeah, academia. Yes, like that is real for people, and so when we invite people in and say your voice matters too in theory creation, like all of that is present. This this feeling of imposter syndrome is something that we talk about a lot. That yeah. you know, there's so many clinicians that feel like their voice uh, is not important in academic discourse. They couldn't even imagine themselves contributing to the creation of an effective theory. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why we do it confidently is because of this posturing of we're not ever in a position to say we know for sure that we're right. It's not about being right. No. Yeah. And and we're never going to stop reflecting back on our own theories and saying what needs to be adjusted now. There's yeah. an assumption that it will, right? Not a protectiveness over, oh, no, no, I can't change anything because I had to be right the first time. Right. There's an assumption that we'll always keep questioning it and adding to it as more information comes. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious to know how people will um, <laughs> engage us and please shoot an email or comments yeah. or whatever, however you want to communicate with us. Because yeah, this really is like an invitation to connect because mm -hmm. we wanted to keep it shorter. We mm -hmm. wanted to keep it in the space of just here's where we're at. Where are you guys at? Yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that um, the way that people engage with trainings, um, I think has been something that we've all kind of noticed and experienced as we're more and more in the role of trainer, um, that there's this feeling of like, we have so much to share and so much to offer and so much wisdom, but that's not the felt experience of us on the other end of it. Yeah. Um, and how much, you know, Beyond Healing Institute really desires to be a space and a place where the focus is on many voices coming together and sharing so that we can all benefit. Um, I mean, we just had a call this morning with somebody that has an area of expertise that none of us have. Yeah. And 
all of us, you know, unanimously said, how can we promote you <laughs> to, to start to speak about this in a theoretical way and develop theory yeah. and develop trainings? How because, can we join you? Yes. Like, and yeah. learn from you. And collaborate. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that that really is at the core of what we're hoping to, uh, develop even more. And yeah. the only way we can do that is if people really feel invited and welcomed to start experimenting with lending your voice. You don't have to be confident and for sure about what that even looks like. It's, it's well, to be totally transparent, it looks like just talking, <laughs> like having, having a conversation yeah. and talking back and forth and exploring. And what emerges out of that is ideas that we would have neither, neither of us would have ever come to those insights just on our own. Mm. And it's in that space of collaboration. And you hear us talk all the time about the intersubjective space. And that is the richest fertile ground, um, for theory to emerge because theory is story and stories happen between people, not alone. Um, and so, yeah, that's a very long winded invitation to, be part of that theory creation in whatever way feels good to you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to engage theory with curiosity yeah stay curious <laughs> stay curious everyone <laughs> yeah we're not starting another podcast where that's the tagline okay oh, why not dang it. It. we'll think about it it could be a sub tagline <laughs> it could be a, a sub tagline i like that better anybody have any concluding thoughts this is fun to just spontaneously sit down and talk about I mean this is a big topic and for us to oh, have yeah. not have like really prepared of like oh we're all gonna say this um mm -hmm. just to and to feel how in alignment we are just feels so honoring to like the felt yeah. experience of what it's like to be a part of this team yeah yeah we have some immaculate right brain synchrony uh, around <laughs> this topic <laughs> and I was, I was so impressed with how our left hemispheres joined this conversation yeah it was beautiful uh-huh yeah, I don't think that we could have done everything that we've done if there was not that synchrony. That's yeah. true. We have yeah, a lot of practice. Telling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, now it's just time to say the words out loud. We've been doing it this whole time. Let's just yeah. talk it out now. Uh -huh. Well, thank you for having this conversation, guys. I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Hope you guys enjoyed listening in. And welcome to Beyond Healing Institute. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.